A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. From WBEZ Chicago, this is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Why aren't you more mad? I think I'm just too tired to be mad. It's like when I think of it, I get exhausted. I get a little desperate. I feel like a little bit like, I feel a little bit like underwater. This is my coworker, Sean Cole, who's a producer here on the radio show. And uh, the thing that brought him to this state is a bed, a bed he does not have. He ordered it back in September when he moved to a new apartment. This is where I've been sleeping since I moved in on the floor on my old mattress awaiting my new bed. Just to be clear, the mattress for the new bed arrived right away after he ordered it. It's rolled up like a burrito near the window. The issue is the bed frame and the headboard. They're still AWOL, undelivered, absent, four months after ordering. And I'm talking to Sean about this because today's program is about all kinds of different sorts of runarounds, and he is in the middle of a sort of classic one, one lots of us have experienced. Uh, for the record, the bed that he ordered is a queen-size bed from the Casper online store. As a podcast producer, he told me he felt like a living cliche ordering a product that is advertised on so many podcasts. But he says he really liked the bed. It's got an angled, cushioned headboard to lean against when you're reading at night. Sean uh, is somebody who's never really fixed up a place with nice furniture, and he was finally getting around to it, and he was excited. And at first, uh, the delay was a completely excusable kind of thing. The bed was back-ordered, which, you know, happens with furniture. It was supposed to be ready for delivery on November 18th. But the 18th of November comes, 18th of November goes, it does not show up. Sean reaches out to Casper. Uh, they said, you'll hear from our delivery partner. Okay, get a text from the delivery partner. It's a company I'd never heard of called RxO. RxO texts me and says, hi, we have scheduled your delivery for September 26th. And I'm like... It hasn't been September 26th for like two months. Sean calls RxO and reschedules the delivery, this time for a date that's in the future, not the past. But um, this is the first of what will be many texts and communications from RxO that make no sense at all. The new delivery date is in three weeks. The day finally arrives. I get up, strip the mattress, pull it off of the floor, set it up so it make it easier for them to take away. So it's leaning against which wall? It was leaning against the wall in the office, against my books. Mm-hmm. Wait for them to come. Rantani gets a text telling him his bed will not be delivered. He needs to reschedule. He calls to find out why. And they said, oh, yeah, no, no, we can't bring it to you because you asked for the Holloway service to take away your old mattress. Well, couldn't this truck still drop off your thing, even if they weren't going to haul away the old mattress? Right, yeah. Good question. Like, why does not being able to take something away prevent you from bringing me something? The delivery is rescheduled for Monday, a few days later. Monday comes, they text, saying it's going to be Tuesday. No explanation why. An hour and a half after that, they text again, saying that now it won't be delivered Tuesday. And so I call them, and I'm like, what's the deal? And they go, oh, there's been a truck breakdown. And I was like, oh, so when can it come now? And they go, oh, hang on a second. And they look at their notes or whatever. And they go, oh, no, no, wait, you are good for tomorrow. And I was like, I am good for tomorrow? They were like, yeah, because it's already been added to the route. And I'm like, is there a truck breakdown? Like what, you know, like, was that just something you said? Like, and uh, I still don't know the answer to that. I have to say, this is one of the most annoying things about this kind of runaround. At every stage, you get answers that leave you sort of squinting and scratching your head, trying to understand them. Every explanation is a non-explanation. So then, Tuesday, I get up again. I strip the bed. I pick the mattress up off the floor. I lean it up against the wall. And then I get a text saying, your delivery is confirmed for Thursday. time any cause, there's no explanation at all, just an apology. Thursday comes, 
And on Thursday, I get up, I do not strip the bed, nor do I pull the mattress off the floor. Because, beginning to learn. Of course, it doesn't come. And I call them, and I'm like, what's going on? And they go, oh, there's a hard hold on this order. And I'm like, why is there a hard hold? And they go, oh, um, there was a duplicate on the order docket. Two bed frames and headboards here that are scheduled for shipment for the same person. They thought it might be a mistake, and they didn't want to ship till they knew. Sean wonders, why didn't they just contact him and ask if he ordered two beds? And also, has this been on his paperwork from the start? Then that's always been the case, right? Like, why am I only finding out about this now? And that means, like, it was never going to come or something. And... And are you wondering, is this even true that there's a problem in the paperwork? Well, no, because it seems so specific. Like, why would you make up something like that? Unless it's just like, I don't know. I don't know. I guess the answer is I don't know. And it's maddening. Then, after thinking they had to deliver two beds to Sean, they admitted they didn't have any. They did a week-long doc search, finally showed up with a bed, but it was the wrong size which put Sean back at square one. Early on, uh, Sean started to keep a record of all these interactions with RxO and Casper. And at this point, it is 18 pages long. If this document were a poem, what would it be called? <laughs> it would be called... Sean's a published poet, by the way. Uh, how do you sleep? We reached out to RxO and Casper, the big company, to find out how they do sleep at night, given their treatment of Sean Cole. The answer was refreshingly honest. Casper's VP of operations emailed admitting, yeah, the last few years because global supply chains have been so crazy, Casper has experienced, quote, a myriad of disruptions. He did say that only a tiny portion of their shipping is done with RxO, and they're trying to work with RxO to improve things. 90% of their customers, he said, rate their experience with RxO favorably, meaning... 10% do not. Sean is 1 in 10. Pretty bad odds, if you ask me. My take is that they never actually had a bed for him. Sean feels like he's come this far and doesn't want to start over with a different company. A runaround hits different people different ways. I'm the perfect person to give the runaround to because I am uh, preternaturally indisposed to... Flipping out, um, you know, demanding uh, a result. You're saying you wouldn't do these things. I would not do these things. I'm I'm the person who you want to give the runaround to because, like, I'm not gonna like reach through the phone and try to strangle you. Like, like, even when I freak out, I'm polite about it. True. Sean can get a little worked up talking to me about all this, but the harshest he ever got with Casper or RxO is a sternly worded email. It sounds like it was written by an English gentleman in the year 1820. Quote, This is beyond unacceptable. Please let me know what Casper intends to do to rectify this situation. Yours sincerely. A runaround where you float in that weird information limbo where you can't tell what the truth is, where you don't get what you want, in a contest of wills with some other person or entity, and it goes on and on and on. It just doesn't end. It tests you. It shows you who you are. Today on our program some very different kinds of runarounds and some very different reactions to them from people who are being pushed to their very limits. Stay with us. Aquan, like the show 48 hours, except a lot more hours. So this first story is about somebody who, like Sean, is being given the runaround. But the runaround is about something much more consequential to her life than a bed frame. And the woman it's happening to, over and over she has to decide whether to cut her losses and walk away or stay with it and fight her way through. Reporter Brenna Smith, who first wrote about this for the news site The Baltimore Banner, explains. Even before this whole thing began, Renee's life involved a lot of running around. She's busy, got three kids, works days and nights as a home health aide. When money's tight, she also drives for DoorDash and Instacart. She spends a lot of time in her car, like a lot of busy people. But unlike a lot of busy people, Renee told me and my producer Chris, she usually chooses the slowest possible route to her next destination because... I'm scared of beltways. I mean, 
I don't do beltways. I take the long way everywhere. What do you mean you're scared of beltways? I'm just scared of all the traffic. Like so many different lanes with cars. My I have real bad anxiety. My nerves are bad. So I think it's just like so many different lanes with just so many cars flying past you. So I just prefer not to. I'd rather go on the side roads. Is there like a Renee speed limit like above this? <laughs> yeah, I don't like to go any past like 45. Renee's commitment to the local roads just outside of Baltimore, where she lives, will sometimes add 20, 30, even 40 minutes to her trips. So that's Renee. The story I want to tell you started last spring, when something went wrong with Renee's SNAP benefits, her food stamps. Her monthly money stopped appearing on her benefits card. Fixing this took five or six trips to the social services office, filling out tons of paperwork and three months of waiting. This isn't unusual for her or anyone on benefits. Finally, a kind woman at the front desk at social services looked into her case and found some glitch in the system. She fixed it for Renee, and the next morning, everything was made right. All three months of missed benefits showed up at once. She now had almost $3,000 on her card, the highest she'd ever had. Renee felt a wave of relief. But a couple weeks later, Renee went online to check the balance on her card. And everything was gone except $66. That's all I can really remember. I thought it was a mistake. I thought, well, let me get off the app. And I cleared it out and tried it again. Same thing. She called the number on the back of the card to make sure and found out, again, $66. First, she was just confused. Then she noticed large transactions at stores she's never visited near Washington, D.C., where she never goes. Because beltways. She realized someone had somehow stolen her SNAP money. The thousands of dollars she'd just gotten back on her card was gone in one afternoon. This is where her runaround began. I've been reporting on social services like SNAP in Maryland, and I've seen SNAP fraud happening a lot. Benefits theft skyrocketed from $90,000 in 2021 to over a million and a half dollars in 2022. Snap fraud is actually up across the U.S. The night it happened to Renee, she couldn't stop crying and couldn't sleep. This is money she used to buy food for her kids. Without it, she'd have to pick up extra jobs, get behind on rent. So the next morning, she marched into the same government building she'd been in so many times before to fix the problem in person. Maybe she'd get the nice lady again. I went down to the social services, and the same lady that fixed the food stamps was like, yeah, I remember I just fixed them for you and all the money that, you know, was going to come on your card. She was almost in tears. She said, I feel so bad for you because it's so much. She said, I've never seen that much be taken at once. Um, She said, but I can tell you now they're not going to they're not going to refund anything. The woman told Renee, because the stolen SNAP money is actually federal money, Marilyn couldn't pay her back. It was a statewide policy. She said, there's nothing we, she said, I really wish we could help you. And then, of course, everybody in the whole, because, you know, you're sitting there with all these people and the window, everybody can hear you talk because you're only walking a couple steps to the window. And, you know, you got the whole room looking at you at one time. So I felt so stupid. I'm crying and I don't, I don't like crying in front of people. I try to hold my emotions back and it was hard that day. I just couldn't hold it back. I first met Renee on this Facebook group for parents in Maryland who use benefits like SNAP. There were lots of parents, mostly moms, writing in saying they had had their benefits stolen. And there was Renee, posting all the time about what had happened to her and really trying to help everyone else. Everyone, please read this, she wrote. If we all come together and report this to the police and social services, then something may be done. There were lots of moms who had tried to get social services to refund them. No luck. They'd also filed reports with their local police. Nothing. I talked to dozens of them, and Renee was in a category of her own. She did far more than anyone else. When I got her on the phone back then, she'd been playing phone and email tag for days, bouncing between every authority figure she could find. The Office of the Inspector General for Maryland Social Services the USDA in D.C., which funds SNAP. Even the Maryland legislature, where she called delegate after delegate, but it all got her nowhere. 
I just spoke to Delegate Robin Grammer, I think his name okay. is, yesterday, and he okay. told me that, unfortunately, no matter what I do, he said they're not going to refund the money. The police weren't any help either. The cop assigned to her case, Officer Timothy Vallis, would sometimes take days to answer her texts and didn't seem to be doing anything. He was a rookie who hadn't graduated the academy yet. So Renee did something I haven't seen anyone else do. She decided to investigate her own case. She was going to find the people who took her SNAP money. One thing about Renee, she loves true crime shows, like 48 Hours. So she knew how important the first couple days are in any investigation. She was worried time was slipping away. So she went to the facts she had. The SNAP Benefits app had given her the details for every fraudulent transaction, all seven of them. They included a dollar amount, a date, and the name of each store. There had been big purchases, some over $500. Renee thought that maybe those stores could rewind their security footage to the times of those transactions and maybe identify the thieves. She texts all this to Officer Vallis. I said, I looked at my food stamps app on my phone and wanted to let you know I found all the store numbers that these people use my food stamp card. I sent him the picture of all that. Mm-hmm. Then he said, okay, thank you. And then I said, She suggested the police contact the stores, but nothing happened. So... I called the stores myself. Most of the stores wouldn't help her. They don't show surveillance footage to customers, only police. But one manager at an international market agreed to check. And they pulled the video of the people that did it. Wow. So she sent me one, two, three, four, five pictures and one four-second video of them just driving away. And all of a sudden, Renee was looking at the faces of the people who stole from her. Security footage from a Sunday in early August. It looked to be during the day. It was bright out. The photo was grainy, but she could make out a middle-aged man exiting the store. Then, in a different photo, a woman with a low bun and a blue-striped skirt with a shopping cart. And you see in the back of the cart, the people that stole it, they bought cases and cases of baby formula. Oh. They didn't buy groceries. These, these people bought cases of baby formula. It's on the picture. $1,200 of baby formula, which seems weird, but it makes sense if you think about it. Formula is a very efficient way to convert food stamps into cash. It's in every grocery store. It doesn't go bad quickly like meat. It's dense, so you can pack a lot of it into your car. And in the summer of 2022, there was a shortage of it. Renee had found the suspects and the getaway car. The footage showed them driving off in a Toyota minivan. But she still had no idea how to find out their names, their identities. And even after squinting every which way at the photos of the license plate, she still couldn't make out what it was. If you look at it from a certain way, you could see a little better, but then once you really start to, it's confusing. It's really hard to, so I just kind of took that and sent that to the officer. When Renee texted all this to Officer Vallis, he didn't say much. Just, quote, I updated the report with the information you've given me. He also said he'd referred her case to the department's investigative and cybercrime units. Then he stopped responding for weeks. But now he's not answering any of my texts, asking, you know, if he has found anything else out. Nothing. He has not responded to you since August 13th. Nothing. No answer. I'm just like, I just feel like people don't don't really care because it's not someone close to them that has needed food stamps. And this is not like $100. I wouldn't probably even call if it was something small. This is under $3,000. And this is not for me. This is for my children. They're taken from my kids. Then, in late August, Renee receives a letter from social services. It says they looked into her case and, quote, did not find a system error or that the card was used fraudulently. There would be no refund. Other moms on the Facebook group had gotten the same letter, and a lot of them had given up at that point. But Renee reads the fine print. She noticed that the bottom of the letter offered her the chance to appeal this finding before a judge with evidence. I think it's called like some kind of fair hearing or something from social services. Okay. And 
I got to prove that it wasn't me, even though it's clearly these people. Right. I have right. to prove that and try to fight that in, you know, court or wherever. So she was going to file an appeal. It was a lot of money. And some part of her just wanted to prove that this thing had actually happened to her, that she had been robbed. All she had was grainy footage from one of the stores. She wanted a stronger case. If she could get better quality security footage from another store, maybe she could identify the license plate, which could lead you to the criminals. She wanted to go in person, but again, these stores were near Washington, D.C., a beltway, an interstate highway, and another beltway away. And her car wasn't in great shape. And so... Okay, we're recording. Let's see. Um, okay, we're going to be there at 10.36. Okay. And that's how I wound up picking up Renee at a red brick row house outside Baltimore on a muggy August day to drive to D.C. We managed to find a time for this after Renee performed some serious scheduling gymnastics. Got a babysitter moved around her hectic work schedule. I recognized her from Facebook, a white lady in her 30s with a round face and big green eyes. Renee was so confident on the phone. But today, faced with the prospect of doing in-person detective work, she's nervous again. I don't need anything, right? I know, I don't think you need to take anything. Like, I think you just need to come in and, like, go. Yeah, like, just explain who you are and why you're there. We stopped right outside D.C., a CVS. Renee had already called the store and talked to a guy named Keith, a manager. We walk in to find him. Hi. Oh, I spoke to you. Keith. Oh, Keith. Oh, Keith. <laughs> what, you're a manager too? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm the one that spoke to you about the baby formula that was stolen. They tell Renee what everyone else did. They're only allowed to show security footage to law enforcement. But, they add, there is a police station a couple blocks away. So if I went there, yeah, you go there they would come right over here and they not know, that. That's all right over here. <laughs> so if they come back here, they do, which they probably won't, but then you'll be able to show them. Yeah. Okay. 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 Within minutes, we're standing outside the police department for the small town of Sea Pleasant, Maryland, telling Renee's story. She explains that she had had her food stamp stolen. One of the cops has a hard time understanding how this crime had gone down. Specifically, how the thieves got their own card. Because the police in my area... What are they, copy it, girl? They're saying... He had my card, even though I have my card. They had a card. Like, we have... They have to have your PIN number, too. Yeah, he said, well, skimmers do When you skim, they punch in the PINs. A skimmer is a device that thieves put over card scanners. It looks just like a card scanner, so you can't tell. You can capture your card information, including your PIN. Most EBT cards, the benefits cards people on assistance, like Renee, use to buy food, they don't have the encrypted chips that most credit and debit cards do. Cards with chips are harder to skim. On top of that, EBT cards don't have fraud detection services. You know, like those text messages you get about suspicious credit card transactions? Text one if it was you, and if not, they'll cancel the transaction. And even with debit cards, you can usually call your bank and tell them that I was stolen from yesterday. You could get your money back. Renee's EBT card didn't have any of that. All of this has turned SNAP recipients into easy marks. Even people like Renee, who never lets her card out of her sight. We try to explain all of this to the officer, who listens to Renee's story. So we have footage from the... Bowers! The officer calls over another cop, Officer Bowers. The supervisor tells him to get the footage from CBS for us. Bowers hops into his patrol car, and we get back into my car to follow him. Then, as we're driving, we notice Bowers' car has its lights flashing. I don't know what these lights mean. He's serious about his business. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. We have a freaking police escort to a CBS. What? Yeah. <laughs> if this don't make the news, they see we're not playing. Look, he's yeah. in front of us directing us with his lights on. <laughs> when we get there, Bowers talks to the CVS employee, who shows him to the back room. We wait out front in the store for about 15 or 20 minutes. Then, Officer Bowers and the CVS employee reemerge. Oh, they're out. Yeah. Same one? Yeah. Bowers told us it was the same woman the one in a low bun in a blue striped skirt, buying hundreds of dollars of baby formula. 
Okay. They're, okay. They hit up all the stores then. Okay. Yep. Give me one second. You Are we able to get the video? Yeah. Officer Bowers yep. shows us the security footage, which he recorded on his phone. We see the woman getting into the same silver minivan after. Okay. Um, we do have a vehicle. It's a Toyota Sienna. Yeah. Like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same one from the other. Yeah. So I think this is a West Virginia tag. The license plate. The thing that could lead them to the criminals. It's blurry here, too. But Bowers says he'd use some fancy police tool to try to figure it out. Finally, the runaround had landed Renee somewhere. She'd found someone in a position of authority actually willing to help her. A few days later, Officer Bowers calls me. He won't let me record or conference Renee in, so I have to tell her afterward what he said. Hey, Renee. Hi. I tell her that Bowers said he thinks he found a match for the license plate, but he couldn't hand that information over to her. His supervisor will no longer let him work on the case. Wow. Yeah, because Baltimore County already has an investigation and that it should only be done to Baltimore County now. Oh, my God. And so... Renee's case landed back in the hands of the cop, who wasn't answering her texts or calls. Renee understood Bowers was just following his boss's orders, but still. It feels like even though it wasn't his fault, it's like all these other people let me down. So when we went there and they actually helped us, I was so excited. I was so excited. I was thinking of, hey, well, he was going to call and we're going to have, you know, some news saying that they caught these people or, you know, something, just something. And then now he's doing the same, just like every other one did. Right. I don't know what to think anymore. I mean, I could try to call Officer Vallis, but if he's not answering my text, he's not going to answer the calls either. I have no idea. Now I can all, I can contact the guy from the OIG. He was really nice, but nobody's saying anything. Right. It's just kind of keeping me in the dark. Like, you know, I don't know. It's just weird to me. Like, this happened to me. I am not some kind of, you know, the suspect, I'm the victim that this happened to. Right. I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of it. I'm so sorry, Renee. It's just frustrating. You know, you get in touch with all these people. They promise to keep you updated, promise to call you back with nothing. It makes you think, like, why did I even ask for the help in the first place? I mean, I don't know what else to do. I've done everything I could. There's nothing else for me to do. Yeah. While she was trying to run down this $3,000, there was so much else going on in her life. There always is. In the last couple of months... A cracked tooth from stress, busted brakes on her minivan. She had to give away her dog. They couldn't afford it. One day, her carbon monoxide alarm randomly went off, and she had to call the fire department to sort it out. But surprisingly, the day after I broke the news to her about Bowers, she managed to get in touch with the cop who had been ghosting her for weeks. Remember Officer Ballas? The Baltimore County cop who, this whole time, was supposed to be looking into her case? She'd reached him in a very kind of private detective sort of way. So yesterday I kept calling Officer Vallis. His phone is still going right to voicemail. I said, this is weird. Why is it a cell phone from work? Why would it be off all the time? And then finally I said, you know what? Let me, something told me. Try from a different phone. So do you know I called from my son's phone and it rang? <gasps> I said, oh, my God. I think he blocked my number. Oh, and I was so furious when I got in touch with him. He's all like, hello. And I'm like, hi, Officer Vallis. He's like, who's this? I said, this is Renee. I said, you're the one handling my case. I said, I'm wondering if, like, you blocked my number. And it made me sound like a creep, but I was so mad. And I'm like, I have been trying to contact you. And he's then, once I mentioned about being blocked, he, like, started being super nice to me. And I said that you guys should be getting this information, not me. Not me and the news reporter. We have been getting it. We went to the stores to get the footage. 
nobody else. And then he started, you know, he was like, you know, try to stay strong and we're trying. And he gave me a number to another, like, crime stopper or something like that. He said, they will get on this more than anybody else. Like, what do you mean they will get on this? You guys, if you can't leave your area that you're patrolling, then somebody should be going there and doing this. Then he also tells me that, yeah, I'm pretty sure I thought you could open another case in another area. I said, well, the other guys told me that his boss said something different and he don't think this is what I mean about the runaround. We reached out to the Baltimore County Police Department. They said Officer Vallis did block Renee's number, quote, for a brief period of time. But they also said he was working on her case. And after Renee got through to Vallis, he did start updating her more. He told her police found the skimmer that they think was used to steal her card number. But then, in November, Renee lost the appeal she had filed. The judge complimented Renee's tenacity, saying she'd, quote, single-handedly and capably investigated the crime and identified suspects. But the judge also said that there is nothing in Maryland law that requires social services to repay stolen SNAP funds. And so Renee wasn't going to get her money back. But she was still looking for some way. And an attorney who volunteered to help her with her case said, there is a way. You can appeal the appeal. Renee thought it over. She's like, it's up to you. Do you want to do another appeal? And I'm like, no. I said, what's the purpose? Like, just to be let down over and over by different judges that are saying, I'm sorry. But then on the other hand, it's like, I already came this far. Why not try to have another appeal and do it again? Um, My mind just goes back and forth. Like, should I, shouldn't I, should I, or shouldn't I? Answer, I should. She filed a second appeal. There is actually one other way this whole thing could be fixed. Congress could do something. And kind of amazingly, they sort of have. The huge spending bill Congress passed last month requires states to reimburse people who have had their SNAP benefits stolen. It's not going to help Renee, though. It only applies to thefts since October. Hers was in August. Also, it ends in 2024, so it's a temporary fix. But Renee's story did get noticed. She actually testified before the state Senate. And later, her congressman, who had been following this issue, introduced a bill that would fix things in a permanent way. It has bipartisan support and looks like it might actually go somewhere. The runaround. It's a thing that can happen to you, but it can also be a strategy. You just stay in it until someone notices and does something. Brenna Smith. She's an investigative reporter with the Baltimore Banner, where a version of her story first appeared. The story was produced by Chris Benderev. Coming up, a nine-year-old on a runaround that his dad does not understand. That's in a minute. Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. It's This American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, The Runaround, stories of all kinds of runarounds that people find themselves trapped in, test who they are, and other sorts of runarounds as well. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Strange Loop. So um, we now turn to a different kind of runaround, and the person you're going to hear about next, nobody is giving him the runaround. He's just running around for reasons that are mysterious, even to those who are closest to him. David Kestenbaum talked to him about it. The guy doing this running around in circles, he's nine years old. And I know him because I live with him. My son Max started doing this early in the pandemic. Max was one of those kids where virtual school was really impossible. All those faces and little boxes on the screen, he just could not focus or stay with it. His handwriting was crazy. He sometimes struggled to read his own name. At some point, we realized he didn't know the months of the year. He had big hills to climb. I worried. One day, he hit on this idea of running loops around the block. We live on a weird lollipop of a street, so these were actual loops he was running, around and around. 
The neighbors told us he was sometimes the only other person they would see during the day. One time, an older man came out and gave him cookies. The running around seemed to settle his mind in a way I did not fully understand. Virtual school was tears and frustration, but running these loops reset him somehow. It was more than just getting exercise. I could see him talking to himself as he went by, but I had no idea what he was saying. He's been doing it for years now, sometimes several times a day. I'm going for a run around the block, sound of door closing, and then he'll be gone, sometimes for 20 minutes. He's done it first thing in the morning, right out of bed when it's still dark. He does it in the rain, annoyingly never with a raincoat. I pile towels by the door, he'll change clothes, but then an hour later, go out again. He did it when it was minus 22 wind chill. I wanted to eavesdrop on one of these runs, to hear what he was saying. Something going on out there was helping him. I wanted to understand his brain. So I had this idea of pinning a small microphone on him. He was not into it. Max, want to wear this microphone when you run around the block? Max, next time. Me. Max, I only want you to do this if you want to. Max, not now. And so on. But I know how to work a reluctant source. I caught him after a run one evening. It was dark and raining. He agreed to a brief interview. I know anything about running. Don't ask me any more questions. It's not an interrogation. Get is tied to a metal chair. Uh, you're just holding your hands behind your back as if you're tied to a metal chair. It counts. <laughs> Do you remember the joke you told me the other day about ADHD? What does ADHD stand for? Attention deficit. Hey, donuts. Do you ever feel like that in your head? Yeah. Like distracted while doing something. And when you're running, does that ever happen? No. I'm focused on my running and my story. That's it. A story. That's what's going on in his head out there, going around and around. He's telling himself a story. That's what the running unleashed. I can remember the first story I ever had. It's pretty much just a little chicken, a little duck, and they were literally friends. And... They waddled around. The stories have changed as he's gotten older. Did you have a story in your head just now? Yeah. There was this big red monster. Like, imagine a human, then imagine him completely ash. Like, just ash. It's interesting to hear this. It has an attention to detail that is sometimes not present in other parts of his life. Then imagine a little red tinge coming off him. He's like a fire person. His hair is on fire. His eyes are red like fire. He told me another one that was like pieces of the world had lodged in his head and recombined. This one violated multiple copyrights. The Avengers were in it, but then also Spaceman Spiff from Calvin and Hobbes. And also somehow... I was pretending to, to be um, Arthur um, Dent. I think, yeah, Arthur Dent. From The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What do you think it is about, um, about running in a story that is calming? I don't know. I have no idea. Are you thinking about a story like all day long, kind of? All day. I run and wander during recess and the thing... And I usually, sometimes I play with my friends, and sometimes I wander around thinking about it. But yeah. Wow, it's like all day long. Yeah. That's kind of amazing. I didn't know that. Mm. Could you think of the story if you were just staying in the house? Yeah, I could, but it's harder. I could think of one, but it's harder. Why do you think it's easier when you're running around the block? Oh. I don't know. Because because I'm moving. I know why. That's been a strange thing. Where if I'm moving, it's completely fine. I have to move to see it. But if I'm standing still, it's really hard. It's funny that you're just running in circles, you know? Yeah. Like you're not going anywhere. Well, in my head I am. In my head I am. Outsmarted you. <laughs> What'd you say? Outsmarted you, Daddy. 
The philosopher Thomas Nagel once wrote an essay titled, What is it like to be a bat? Apparently he had bats in his house. And he wondered if it was possible to truly know what it was like to be a bat. To have webbing on your arms, to perceive the world with sonar, to hang upside down in the attic. His answer was no. You could not know the mind of such a creature. Okay, should we go? go. Okay, bye. Max did finally agree to let me put a mic on him while he ran around the block. It was like I was right there with him. He was battling some invisible monster. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll be fine, he says. Those cuts are deep. Those cuts are deep. It's fine. It's fine. You're right, Max. It is. David Kestenbaum is our show's senior editor. Act three, Americans Most Wanted. So we now uh, turn to criminals trying to give the runaround to the police. And in uh, this case, choosing a route that you see now and then in the movies, they escape to Mexico. That's right, cross the border to start a new life in a country where they think that they're going to be safe. So many people do this. In fact, the number's on the rise. The Mexican police formed a special elite unit whose only mandate is to catch these fugitives. The unit's based in Baja, California, just south of San Diego. They work with tips they get from the FBI and U.S. Marshals. They are called the Gringo Hunters. Kevin Seif is a reporter for The Washington Post. He hung out with them as they ran around trying to snag fugitives. The cops in this special unit find the gringos everywhere in beach resorts, at a nightclub called Papa's and Beer, in cars with sex workers, in Carl's Jr. parking lots. Some had undergone plastic surgery and acquired new names they couldn't pronounce. Some were found dead. They were former Playboy models, amateur surfers, ex-Navy officers. Most of them are alleged serious criminals, rapists, pedophiles, murderers. The cops have become used to the way American fugitives saunter across the border, expecting that they won't be found. Here's Moises. He was the head of the unit when I was there. He's proud of his work, but he gets that it can be kind of funny sometimes. As many Americans, I think that, like in the cartoons, like in the movies, and Mexico, was yeah, they, everybody there has boots and hat and was on a horse or on a donkey. And, so then they think I can go and hide there. And I mean, they when they come here to Mexico and they see... No, this is, here's a city. I mean, it's, it's a big city, and it's even better. I'll hide, and the police will never find me. And when they least expect it, boom, there we are, right in front of them. <laughs> Moises has been doing the job for 12 years. Hanging out with him, he's like an encyclopedia of gringo fugitives. A lot of the gringos, he tells me, are white guys who think they can make a go of hiding on the coast, blending in with tourists. But they can't. The way they dress, the way they walk, the way they express themselves is totally different. The t-shirts are different. If they're wearing shorts, the shorts are different. Totally different. Even the shoes are totally different. One officer told me the Americans wear flip-flops that are one size too big, usually with socks. Then there are the Mexican-American fugitives, who are still such obvious gringos to Moises and the other cops. They're born in the U.S., they have family in Mexico, but they can never totally blend in either. Something about them is eventually going to betray them as American. That's the kind of fugitive they were chasing when I was with them a Mexican-American guy named Damian Salinas. He's 20 years old from Fresno, California. Back in 2020, Salinas had allegedly murdered another man at the scene of a traffic accident. The killing was shocking, seemingly unprovoked, a gunshot at point-blank range. The victim was a 36-year-old mechanic named Joshua Tao. He was like a father to his nieces and nephews, his sister said. Right before he was shot, witnesses said, He shook the murderer's hand, trying to calm tempers. After the shooting, Salinas vanished. 
there were no leads. He'd been a fugitive for almost two years. Now suddenly there was new intel. Salinas was supposedly here in Ensenada, about an hour and a half south of the border, cutting hair at a barber shop. Abigail, one of the unit's officers, was leading the planning. They didn't have a search warrant, so they were going to have to find a way to lure Salinas outside. I don't know, maybe if their car is outside, we can be like, maybe like, find a way to be like, oh, you got a flat tire or something, could you come out? I think your car has a flat tire. And then when they go out, that's when we get them. We've done that before. Abigail's the only woman on the team. You'd think she's the boss, even though she's not. She's on her phone constantly, pumping her sources and colleagues for more and better intel. That's what she was doing during the Salinas case, shouting a stream of questions into her phone. Did Salinas have any connection to Mexico? Who was he living with? Where was he getting his money from? She paused at one point to catch her breath. Sorry, she said to her colleague. It's a murder case, so it's a little bit urgent. We get to the barber shop. Abigail and her colleague Yvonne scope it out from the front seat. Yvonne is a former bodyguard. He's the one in the team most likely to show up with a six-pack after a big win. He gets a text. There's intel from the U.S. Marshals. It was a new tip. They're sending us to another barber shop, Yvonne says. It sounds like Salinas is in Tijuana, about an hour north. So Abigail floors it along the highway that traces the Pacific Ocean, driving close to 100 miles an hour. Signs of the gringo presence are everywhere. Big billboards in English that say things like, invest in your new ocean view house. Another said, thong and tequila party. In some ways, this part of Mexico seems perfect for Americans trying to disappear. But Abigail has become a pro at drawing them out. She told me earlier that morning about one of her new strategies. She's created a bunch of fake Facebook accounts using stock photos of attractive women that she uses to catfish fugitives. One guy had actually posted on a Facebook group looking to meet people. He even used his real name. He wanted to smoke some weed, and he wanted to smoke it with me, and stay overnight at my place, and have a crazy night, and I said, yes. So yeah, he brought his little suitcase with his clothes, and he was thought he was going to stay with me for a few days, all like washed up and cologne. Another cop from the unit cuts in and starts to troll Abigail. Sometimes they arrive stinky, he says. It's so you don't have to struggle with the stinky perp, right, he says. You just want to deliver them nice and clean, no fuss, back to the gringos. <laughs> Abigail grew up in Tijuana, secretly dreaming of becoming a police officer. Her mother begged her not to. Being a cop was dangerous. But she says she was born to do the job. Abigail waited until her own daughter was a little over two, and then she signed up. The stakes feel so high to her. The gringos coming across, they could just repeat their crimes on her side of the border. She told me about the case of a pedophile who fled the U.S. He moved into a house near a Tijuana elementary school where he was getting ready to look for more kids to abuse. She was like, if we don't catch this guy today, who knows what he'll do here in Mexico. When we arrived in Tijuana, we parked across from the second barber shop, and Yvonne and Abigail began their surveillance. As always, they work undercover. Today, jeans and t-shirts, like two friends, headed out for a day at the beach. Abigail bought some nachos from the shop next door, slyly peering into the barber shop. Yvonne put on a black backpack and walked by, disguised, I guess, as a 30-something-year-old student. Then we all settled in the car and got comfortable, staring through the windshield. 
Usually on stakeouts, Ivan is constantly turning up the volume on Bad Bunny. Today, he's kind of bragging, showing me dozens of photos of the gringos he's arrested, like a yearbook of American fugitives. Then they get another call. Someone has left the apartment above the barber shop. The person got into a gold Honda Accord and drove away. One of the agents says over the radio, I think it's Salinas. Then they take off, cutting across four lanes of traffic. Abigail cuts off the Honda and they surround the car. I'm watching them approach the car, and this is kind of a scary moment. Only a few weeks before, the cops had been in a shootout with a fugitive from California. Moises and Yvonne got shot. The team told me that they were worried that Salinas, too, might come out shooting if he was cornered. I watched them pull a skinny guy out of the driver's seat and push him against the car. He didn't look to me like the guy I'd seen in the most wanted posters. Then they take his wallet from his back pocket. There's a California driver's license with the name Damien Salinas. They get out their handcuffs. Where's your name? Damien, okay. You have an other ID? Only have a, this? Uh, only so. Only okay. It's valid. Uh, you have something, your knife in the no. car? Nothing? Guns? Guns? No. Drugs? Guns? No. Uh, it's a person. Even after all the buildup, there was still something startling about seeing the cops catch their fugitive. It was surreal. They start figuring out logistics. Who's going to take the gold Honda? Selena seems confused. He starts saying, I will go... And that's when Abigail interrupts him. No, you're coming with us. Salinas doesn't put up a fight. They stick him in the backseat of the car, and I ask if I can sit next to him to ask a few questions. They say sure, but they put the biggest cop in the unit between us in case Salinas lunges at me. But he doesn't. He looks like he just woken up from a nap. Yeah, I'm not a, just to be clear, I'm not a law enforcement official. I'm, I'm a journalist. Wait, you're... Sorry? What are you again? I'm a journalist. Journalist? Yeah. yeah those are badass jobs. I like them. It's interesting sometimes. This whole day I'd been wondering, what is this guy going to be like? How had he evaded authorities for almost two years? I think I'd been expecting an angry, sophisticated criminal. This guy, after all, was being accused of homicide. But Salinas is like a kid trying to disguise himself as a man. His mustache is wispy. He's wearing Air Jordan sandals with socks. Forever West Coast was tattooed on his right arm. He keeps saying how nervous he is, but then he spins a tale about how he'd only been caught because he let his guard down. Why didn't you try to go further into Mexico? Like, you stayed so close to the border. Well, I'm not a dumbass, though. I know why they caught me. I just stopped trying after a while, you know, things got, you know? The cops are never really that smart, you know, so it's every every place they hit, I was right. I was always watching them. I watched them like they watched me. And for, after a while, I just gave up. I was like, fuck it. Why'd you give up? It's just going through a lot, you know, being alone and shit, the depression. Yeah. You know, PTSD gets in, all kinds of shit. So, so you basically were like, resigned yourself to getting caught. Yeah. You almost wanted to get caught, it sounds like. Yeah, basically. Abigail weaves through Tijuana traffic with the siren on. We're headed to the border to hand Salinas over to U.S. authorities. And then Yvonne puts on Gangster's Paradise and turns up the volume. He tells me, ask him if he's a rapper. Are you a rapper? Or were you ever a rapper? Yeah, I like rap. Si le gusta. Have you ever sung a song? No, no, I never. And then they pull up a video on Yvonne's cell phone. It's a video of Salinas rapping, taken from his social media. Why did you lie and say you didn't have a song if you had a song? I'm not getting embarrassed, man. That's all. Salinas seems calm at this point. Abigail parks the car at the border, and the Mexican police march Salinas past a long line of people. 
the daily border crossers and migrants who were waiting to enter the U.S. on foot. They craned their necks to look at the American fugitive. A small group of uniformed U.S. officials is standing at the border. One of the agents bends his knees in a blocker's position, as if Salinas might make a run for it. Yeah, we know. We know all about it. So we got, we got the phone call. You guys are bringing them on it. The Mexican police take off the Mexican handcuffs and the Americans put on American cuffs. It feels almost ceremonial. The arrest is done. The gringo is back in gringo hands. I watched the gringo hunters walk back from the border to their car. They had just arrested an alleged murderer. I looked for some kind of reaction. I'm not sure what exactly, a high five, a look of accomplishment, but there was almost nothing. The unit chases and catches so many gringos that Salinas was just another name on their list. They already had their next day's assignment. A woman had kidnapped and drugged a child. They too were likely living in Tijuana. A few weeks after the Salinas chase, I was talking to Moises, the head of the gringo hunters. And he told me this thing. He said that sometimes he's hanging out with his friends who are not cops. And he gets this feeling that I think cops everywhere get, that regular people just don't know how many bad guys are out there. They don't know how scary it can feel to chase fugitive Americans day in and day out. What I do is so that right now you guys can all be hanging out here comfortably. Because if we didn't do it, We'd be surrounded by all these kind of people. Like We wouldn't be able to just hang out in the afternoons and the evenings because we'd just be looking over our shoulder. Because we've caught an infinite number of Americans, eh? I've participated in, I don't know, around 1,300, 1,200 fugitive arrests. I mean, that's a lot of fugitives we've arrested. That's... Two or three per week, 140, 150 a year, per year. And it never ends, right? They just keep on coming? Yeah, yeah, they, they just keep on coming, they keep on coming. And I mean, there are times when things slow down, but then suddenly it's like, like they all agree to come across at the same time. I don't know. I'd like to say that they all came on the same bus or something. <laughs> Moises doesn't come out and say it, but chasing American fugitives all day, it has shaped how he sees the United States. Part of the problem, he says, is that in the U.S. it's so easy to get a gun. On some of his trips there, it seemed like everyone was armed. As we talked, it struck me that he'd come to see Mexico as being in a perilous position, bordering this heavily armed, crime-infested nation. I'd heard that tone before. He spoke with a very real fear, and perhaps a little bit of hysteria, the same way I've heard so many Americans talk about a lawless Mexico. Kevin Seif from The Washington Post. He also did a print version of this story with pictures that you can find online at the Post website. The story was produced by Nadia Raymond.
Our program is produced today by Chris Benderev. The people who put our show together today includes Elna Baker, Sean Cole, Michael Kamate, Andrea Lopez Cruzado, Aviva de Kornfeld, Bethel Hopte, Cassie Halley, Valerie Kipnis, Elena Mustafa, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Ryan Rummery, Alyssa Ship, Laura Strachewski, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editor is David Kastenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. The voice actors in the Gringo Hunter story were Luis Bordenada and Chelsea Rendon. Special thanks today to Deborah Harris, Kini Yoshino, Susan Davis, Patrick Creamer, Matt Bonacorsi, Caitlin Hodgkins, Nate Cross, Benjamin Kowalski, Nina Reinhardt, Kim McBride, Mark Butekas, Luke Vanderplug, Sabrina Hyman, and Fernando Monroy. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's videos, there's also favorite shows to listen to, tons of other stuff, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he tried to give me his recipe for turducken. I don't know. I just don't think he got it right. It's pretty much just a little chicken, a little duck, and they're literally friends. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. Oh.